the inequalities that autistic people face are you know, incredibly stark. The only way to invest in changing that is to gather evidence that will really tell us about what works for autistic people and how we can actually deliver change. Welcome to episode two of season three of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital culture and change. I'm Zoe Ammer. And I'm Paul Thomas. Our podcast seeks to bring you interviews with leaders from the public, private and third sector who are using digital to navigate uncertainty and forge a path to the future. On today's episode, we're sharing our conversation with James Cusack, who's Chief Executive at Autistica, the UK's autism research charity, who we talked with about the importance of neurodiversity in today's digital world. But before we introduce James, we want to say thank you for listening. We know there are many podcasts out there, many, many podcasts, and we're flattered that you've chosen to listen to ours. We had a fab start to this run with Maggie Philbin last week, so if you haven't listened to Maggie's episode, we'd highly recommend going back and listening to it. But Zoe, you wanted to discuss this week's announcement by the CEO of Citigroup about Zoom-free Fridays. Yes, so I thought this is a really interesting story. So some of you may have seen, and we'll put the link in the show notes, that Citigroup CEO Jane Fraser has banned video calls on Fridays. And she's also launched a thing called a City Reset Day. And that's going to be a holiday. I think that's at the end of May to kind of mark uh, a new era of the way the organisation is going to work. She said that she wants the workforce to avoid scheduling meetings outside of normal working hours and she said that there's been a real relentlessness to the way everyone's been working from from home that it's taken a toll on well-being and it's simply not sustainable I think it's really positive and it's really brilliant to see a CEO who's sending out such a strong message about work-life balance and well-being and also creating a very visible sign of of leadership to say to people look I appreciate the hard work that you've put in and we need to make sure that if we're going to continue working remotely that we do it in a way that that works for everyone and doesn't mean that people are going to get signed off sick for these long periods so I thought that was really good to see that and in fact I put a tweet out this afternoon sharing the story asking if anyone has any examples of someone doing something similar in the charity sector and I know there are some charity leaders who have been very supportive of their team's well-being and encourage things like meeting free time and well-being days so if you're someone who's got a great case study about that, then Paul and I would love to hear about that. So please do tweet us. Definitely. And it comes in the same week. And there was a story about bankers, junior bankers at Goldman Sachs getting burnt out. You're doing 100 hour working weeks and, and things like that. Uh, nationwide today. So we're recording. What's the date today? We're recording on Thursday, the 25th of March. And today, Nationwide announced that their 13,000 employees are entering a choose where to work, where you want to work, work anywhere phase. Apparently, 57% of staff there wanted to work from home full time and 36% want this hybrid approach where they can work in in the office or at home which is a huge amount of that employee base i think it's going to be difficult for the people working in branches but the um the phrase that their ceo used and i really like this was um locate for their day depending on what they need to achieve so locate for your day i think really does work 
well you know if you if you need to be in the office because you've got meetings or you're you're working as part of a team then come in if you're not then it's okay to be at home and i think that that normality is is going to to be a big um, or that change to normality is going to be a big change for all of us and santander as well was another big organization that said that they were going to be changing things moving i think their head office out to to milton keynes they've already got a big operation in milton keynes but making that even bigger so i think it's a it's interesting isn't it that lots of organizations are making this change and i wonder whether the um the announcements have been timed nicely to to meet the um the date this week that we all sort of took a deep breath and said well it's been a year since we entered the first lockdown so it's nice to see that organizations are making a change and taking that change forward i think what's happening in all of these organizations is that the 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 rules of engagement and the balance of power between the employees and the employer is being redrawn and in my view the savvy organizations like nationwide are, are kind of going with that and thinking about how they can reconfigure the ways of working and the operations and everything like that so that it works equally well on on both sides if anything it's a little bit more weighted around the the employees and I think that can only be a good thing and then of course at the other end of the spectrum you have what's been exposed at Goldman Sachs which is this very very top-down command and control culture as, as I understand it based on what we've seen in those news stories and again you know coming back to the point about sustainability moving into this new era the way people are, are working now is that very extreme imbalance sustainable I, I, I don't think it is yeah and it has a knock-on effect doesn't it because new employees that are looking at these organizations and deciding where to work are going to have a choice and they can choose whether they want to go and work in an environment like Goldman Sachs and other big investment banks and places like that or whether they take those skills to other employers where that that balance is is more pronounced and I think speaking for myself you know that's what I've been seeking for the last couple of years is that 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 balance and why I, I left a, a sort of a corporate organization to go and do something on my own so I, I think it, it wor- works both ways but I think that's going to be the interesting thing is what the employee of the future is is looking for and I just sort of said at the dinner table just a minute ago to my 12 year old when he goes into the workplace, it might be a, a very different experience from what we traditionally have seen, you know, Monday to Friday, nine till five, going into a, a, an office um, environment that you know, we've got used to, he might never experience. Who knows? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I was talking to my 10-year-old the other week and I was saying to him, you know, when you're older, are you looking forward to, to Zoom calls? And <laughs> and. <laughs> He just said, he said, mommy, I'm not going to bother with Zoom. I'm just going to go into the office. And he sounded so jaded when he said it. (laughs) (laughs) You're only 10. You're only 10. Yeah, but it's what we see around us, isn't it? You know, even we we just started watching um, Call My Agent last night and just the idea that people were sat in offices and moving between rooms and, and not paying any attention to social distancing was just quite odd. Another big story that you wanted to talk about was Chrissy Teigen's decision to leave Twitter. Yes, so we've talked about Chrissy Teigen on the podcast, I I think last season, uh, where um, you might remember that she's done some fantastic, very brave work on social media, talking about her experience of baby loss. And very sadly, just this week, she's she's announced that she's leaving Twitter. In fact, she's already gone. And she said that, and basically what the story seems to imply, that she has found being on Twitter really, really difficult, a real kind of bullying culture. And it was pretty disturbing as well, seeing the reaction to the news because there were a lot of people when I was on Twitter this morning uh, saying oh we're so glad that she's left Twitter and there was almost a kind of rejoicing from 
from the the people who who were bullying her and I think it's it's just awful I mean it really really shows the stage that we've got to with with social media now uh, someone like that she's she's a woman she's smart she's funny she's done some fantastic work campaigning in a very very difficult uh, taboo area and she's kind of been drummed off the platform and that's a failure of the platform it's a failure of their content moderation and it's just awful that we're treating people like this it's it's not acceptable and if we were doing the same thing real life real life it just it wouldn't it wouldn't be right you would have the police all over it mm-hmm. i was reading an interview uh, the other day with the actor david harewood uh, who gets a huge amount of racist abuse on twitter and apparently he doesn't actually pick up his phone in the morning now because he's so used to the first thing that he sees being this this horrible horrible trolling and if you couldn't leave your house without someone saying horrendous things to you and horrific racial abuse the police would be on that but because it's social media action isn't taken and I think that's a failure of the social media platforms and it's a failure of the regulation or lack of yeah there's nothing really to argue with there, is there? I think it's um, it's an indication, perhaps, of the direction that, not the direction, but the way that Twitter as a platform is being used in particular. I know it's not just Twitter. There are other social platforms where this happens, but it does seem to be uh, a problem that Twitter has had for a long time and hasn't addressed. And I'm not quite sure where they go from here. Uh, you know, and speaking personally, I've found it a problematic channel, especially in the last year or two. But for a number of years, the reason I fell in love with Twitter in the first place just isn't there anymore. And I think Chrissy talked in the article that I saw, the the write up that I saw, um, had talked about the fact that, you know, it used to be a, a, a community and she feels that she's leaving a community and possibly letting a community of people down by not being there anymore. But I think that's the the sense that I always used to have with Twitter, that it was it was a community of people of, of um, shared interests. Those shared interests were debated. Those subjects were, were eagerly debated that we waited to sort of share ideas and have discussions on Twitter because it was accept- it was warmly accepted and debated and the, the conversation was strong. And just over the past few years, it's just dripped away, I think. If I didn't have to, and if I didn't think that I was uh, Twitter was a part of the social media landscape that I'm talking to my clients about and how they interact with the channel, then perhaps I'd think about leaving it too because I don't know that it's always doing what it what it needs to do. It's not to say that I don't have wonderful conversations on Twitter. It's not to say that I haven't met some amazing people over Twitter. But I think the the good is slowly being outweighed by the bad. And I think something does need to, to change and something needs to, to give. Perhaps Twitter will, will start to, to listen if more big names like Chrissy Teigen do start to leave the platform. Yeah, absolutely. And you imagine the commercial consequences of someone like her uh, leaving the platform as well. So I saw some other coverage which said that she's actually been brought in as a, a speaker previously, I think, at some of the Twitter kind of all hands meetings and, and, and things like that. So presumably she won't be doing that anymore. And the kind of, um, you know, the advertising and stuff like that that she'll have done on the that platform although she does a lot on Instagram as those of you who follow her will will know but actually her leaving I mean this as you say that's going to take take a chunk out of the engagement for that maybe that's the the thing to do 
Yeah, I think it's something that we should explore a bit further on this or in some blog posts or, or something, because I think there's a there's a much bigger discussion here in a much bigger sort of cultural moment in time, I think, as we we really start to wake up to what's happening on these platforms, you know, how we can start to, to change that. But on to our interview. We spoke to James in mid-February of this year. A slight disclaimer, James did say at the beginning that he had some building work happening close by. I can't remember whether it was his house or a neighbour's on the day of recording. So there's a bit of background noise towards the end, which we've done our best, or Beth, our um, producer, has done her best to remove um, the joys of working and recording from home. So without further ado, here's our interview with James. So today on the podcast, we are absolutely delighted to welcome James Isaac, who's CEO of Autistica. He joined Autistica in September 2015 as their Director of Science, following a career in autism research at the University of Aberdeen. From a young age, James has also worked directly with families affected by autism, and he has experience in clinical, educational and social care settings. James has sat on a number of advisory panels discussing the role of research in autism, and he was involved in the production of the report, A Future Made Together. He was part of a core stakeholder group which successfully campaigned for Scotland's first ever autism strategy. He became CEO of Autistica in 2020, and he is the UK's first openly autistic charity CEO. James, it is a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you very much for having me and for the introduction. Really appreciate it. <laughs> we would love to hear a bit more about you and your role at Autistica because obviously you've been there for, for some time, haven't you? Yeah, so I've been chief executive since August. So that's about six months. I've been in this role for quite a short amount of time, but previous to that, I was um, our director of science. So I was in that uh, job for almost exactly five years. And so it's really been quite a busy time for us. We've really changed quite an awful lot in that time. Um, you know, we were really, when I joined a grant funder and someone who funded research grants. And since then, we've really tried to expand our operation and tried to really think quite strategically about how we can change things for autistic people through research and how research can actually make a difference for autistic people. And so that's meant that we've done a range of different things. We've set up a, a network that allows autistic people to get more and their families to get more engaged in autism research. We've had a range of different initiatives. We've really, really focused on the outcomes that autistic people face. So we've really highlighted things like the health inequalities that autistic people face. And now we're really looking to the next 10 years and really thinking about what it is that autistic can do to drive real change for autistic people. And, and, and now we're just in the process of setting some big long-term goals that could really improve the lives um, of autistic people. Thank you. And those issues that you mentioned, those various challenges and also opportunities that uh, those with autism face, do you think that they're getting enough airtime in the media? I mean, obviously, there's a campaigning element to what you do. But do you mm -hmm. think that as a society, we're aware enough of these issues? Autism affects at least one in 100 people in the, in the UK. So that's 700,000 people. And autism is, is, is a condition which really affects how you perceive and interact with the world around you, including people. And at the moment, I think it's, de it's definitely true that we society's awareness of autism is much greater than it was 20 years ago, which is a fantastic step forward and really, really positive. Um, but I think society's understanding of autism needs, does need to improve. And um, I think, 
you know, there is an, an increasingly acknowledgement that autistic people need better support and practice. I think there's an awful lot of work to do to try and really ensure that from day one, autistic people are getting the support that they need. And, you know, in particular, as a research charity, the quality of evidence that families and, and, and autistic people have to rely on is very, very poor. And, you know, really, if we're serious about changing the lives of, of autistic people and their families, we need to really be investing in the sort of drivers of change that will lead to actual systemic change for autistic people and, and their families. And that means like doing things like investing in research and, and making sure that people were running trials and, and we're really accurately looking at what works and what doesn't work for different types of autistic people as well. And, you know, we know that the consequences of not doing this are, are quite serious for autistic people. We know that autistic people face reduced life expectancy, markedly increased rates of mental health problems. So around half of autistic children have uh, meet clinical criteria for an anxiety disorder by the time they're in primary school. We know that this also goes on to affect quality of life as autistic people become adults. So many people are denied opportunities to enter the workplace. In fact, of any disabled group, autistic graduates are the most likely to be unemployed as well. So we know we've got all of these different outcomes that, that we face. And so, you know, the inequalities that autistic people face are you know incredibly stark. The only way to invest in changing that is to gather evidence that will really tell us about what works for autistic people and, and how we can actually deliver change you know because if we don't face this challenge then you know we're, we're going to have a, a huge set of issues and so that's really what we're trying to do as a charity and i think you know well it's great that society is more aware of autism we have to do the work to change it to change things for autistic people and if we don't then we're going to have a problem well thank you for all the amazing work that you and your team are doing to shine a light on such an important area and that theme of inclusion and understanding what works for different groups is something I'd love to pick up on a bit later in this mm. conversation because there seems to be a huge issue as workplaces begin to reopen as we start to see what this new world of work potentially looks like and how we can mm. make that as in inclusive as, as possible for um, everyone. Mm. Um, but before we come to that I'd love to hear a bit more about the role that digital plays in the work that Autistica does? So I think digital is obviously important for all charities and I think it's it's important in different ways. I've only ever worked at Autistica. It's, it's always more difficult for me to get a bit of a baseline having only been, ever worked at one charity before. But I, I think that the population of people that we, that we serve, you know, are, you know, that being autistic people and families, it means that digital has a unique role to play for us. And so, you know, I think... The first thing is, is that, you know, in terms of providing information and content, having a clear set of, of approaches is um, really, really important. So, you know, we've we've worked really hard in terms of how we deliver information. Not all of our offer really in terms of how we support autistic people and their families is, is digital. And, and that's what, you know, I think is probably worth flagging. And what we are primarily a research charity, but we also do policy work and we also deliver information to autistic people and their families. And so a big thing that we've been doing is, is moving towards providing information. And we've really accelerated that since the beginning of the pandemic. So doing things like Facebook Live events, having information accessible online and doing different types of webinars. But we've also, the other thing that we've also done is we've, from the beginning of starting a conference, so I mentioned earlier that we've set up a, a network. From the moment that we host that conference, we also host that conference online and we streamed that as free to access for community members. And the reason that we did that is simply because it's not easy for all autistic people or families to access a conference that, that involves them getting on a train the conference that we had was based in london that's quite a busy 
environment. So being able to offer something digitally or offer something like a conference digitally has been really important for us because that just open that opens the event up to a whole new community because we wanted to make it autism friendly type event we limited the capacity to 300 people so our conference was also selling out really quickly so we needed to make it digital to make, open it up to a, a broader group of people so we've just always had this mindset that this was always like a hybrid event anyway and so I think for us, digital can be like a real, can really make things more accessible for people. I mean, it's important to recognize that not all people can access a conference online either, but it, it's a step, it's a step forward for us. And so, you know, that's been really, really important. And I think that the other thing that we've really thought an awful lot about in terms of digital is just how we make our content accessible. And the fact, I think we're quite conscious that different autistic people in particular need to access content in different ways and so we're i guess we've got a podcast which we which we which we do as well but we've, we've also got, like i said the webinars and the website and it's just trying to provide different ways of, of making content accessible to people and then you know i think the other thing we've, we've spent a lot of time doing is user testing so user testing in particular with autistic people and families to try and understand whether our assumptions are correct so that's a big principle that we have at Autistica is that we always involve autistic people and families in everything that we do. We've got a number of staff members at the, in the team who are autistic themselves. And so we're all continuously trying to check that what we do is accessible to people. And, you know, I think for us, sort of take home is if you look at the networking and so on, you know, we've, I think we've got almost 15,000 people on our network now. We've sort of slowly grown that. And it's because that sort of digital farm delivery really works well for our stakeholder group. That's so exciting because in many, many ways, it feels like you guys have are absolutely ahead of the curve. So the fact that your conference, for example, was was always a bit of a hybrid event, and then you were able to, to pivot and make that a, a, a digital event. And the fact that what you're, you're doing is so much about that co-creation and that user testing and approaching things in a very iterative way, particularly mm. around accessibility. I mean, that's that's fantastic. And I think that's a, a, a very strong case study that so many other charities could could learn from. So on that note, you talked at the start of that answer about how charities are obviously increasingly re reliant on digital. And as they, they grow that use of digital, how do you think they should be factoring neurodiversity into their plans so they can be as inclusive as possible? I think the great thing about the word neurodiversity is that it's actually inclusive of everyone. And I really like the term neurodiversity for a lot of reasons. I think it means that you're just not talking about people who have neurodevelopmental conditions or who are neurodivergent in, in some way, which would be sort of mean they have some meaningful difference, which makes them different. The great thing about neurodiversity is that it's celebrating the fact that everyone is different from one another and we all think about the world and we all see the world differently and i think that's a really good thing for people to be aware of first of all i think you know in society there's been a sort of temptation i think within things like schools to make children aware of autism or adhd or these different types of conditions and i would much rather that children were just made aware of the fact that we're all actually different and as part of that learn about autism and so on but i i think it's really interesting that one thing I've really observed amongst children and, and, and teenagers and people as they grow up is they have this overwhelming need to sort of conform and sort of fit in with everyone and sort of conform to this sort of 
type of person that they think they should be. And I think the great thing about new, neurodiversity is that it, it, it moves that conversation on and actually gets people to celebrate the fact that they're all different. So I think that's the first thing to really sort of emphasize is that if we all acknowledge that we're different and we all acknowledge that we have different preferences in terms of how we sort of digest information, that's a really positive thing to acknowledge and, and, and to be aware of. And then I think if you acknowledge that and, and then become aware of that, then you then you can sort of embrace the fact that people just have different preferences. And so, you know, in, in that context, I think that is ultimately what it's all about. It's about really, in terms of this digital understanding, that people might just have different communication preferences in terms of how they interact online. So, you know, within our team meetings, it's accepting the fact that some people just prefer to use chat. They're not going to put their hands up and speak. It's having you no know, proper etiquette in place that will allow people to contribute. It's trying to sort of make the purposes of, of meetings really clear. And it's also just explaining, like from the beginning, what the ground rules are for, for communication and making it sure that people can feel empowered to use whatever option works well for them. So, you know, I think... I think the major key thing with this is just options and having giving people different options. We've had a lot of people sort of come to us and say, you know, around talk to us about digital health and you know how does digital health work for autistic people? And we've had some people go, oh, surely this this just works brilliantly for all autistic people. This is like this is the thing that's going to really empower them and improve healthcare. You know, we've had other people going, oh, surely this is an absolute disaster, you know, like because it's confusing and so on. And the reality is, is it just depends on the autistic person. The principle is very simple. It's around personalization and thinking about what works well for that works works well for that person. Some people find it difficult having their camera on and speaking to lots of different people with a camera on, they just find it hard to adjust to because they spent their whole life adjusting to a set of norms. And then this is a new set of norms. Some people find it a lot easier than speaking on the phone. So a lot of autistic people find speaking on the phone really difficult. Some people find that, like I said earlier, the chat function empowering. But the key thing is just, again, that personalization, that, that, that idea that you can have a range of different tools that allow people to interact uh, and that, you know, that can work for people. And just, um, you know, just setting expectations in a clear way. And then, you know, there's just other accessibility things like making sure that they're the same things don't apply that you would in a, in a general event. So, you know, not having unexpected loud noises, making sure that there's ample time for people to step out of meetings as well, you know. And, you know, I guess what I would always say is, you know, we'll, you know, when you talk about making these events accessible, you're not just making them accessible for autistic people, you're making them accessible for everyone because we all benefit when when we make these types of changes and i think there's a number of things that initiatives that we do you know so you know around employment and so on where we hand out interview questions ahead of time and and so on which we've been advocating for for a couple of years but and everyone sort of thinks oh that's really good for autistic people but it just tends to be good for everyone <laughs> like i think that's the key thing i'd say i was going to say without sort of wanting to appear sort of glib about it but this is probably the, the time in the last 18 months we're all experiencing things very differently from the way that we've experienced them before so leveling that that field is mm. is probably an opportunity I, I mean the question i was going to ask was going to be about increased isolation we're all feeling that as well but what you're saying is well increased isolation for autistic people is it just the same as it is for for anybody else we're all going to have to deal with that in our own way and so that diversity that leveling of the playing field that trying new things and trying different ways to communicate to everyone is is just what has become normal for for most of us 
Yeah, I mean, definitely, definitely, I think there's an extent to which that's true. Definitely, autistic people because they have many have less connections and social connections have felt been felt left during the pandemic to feel particularly stranded because there's their, their services have been cut back and so on. So I think that has definitely had a very acute effect on them. But where I think what I think is interesting in terms of you know talking about leveling the playing field is it's interesting. So autistic people and disabled people have been saying for years, you know, why can't I work from home? We have the technology to do this now. We can work remotely. And people had all of these sort of expectations around productivity and so on. And guess what? We could have done it the whole time. <laughs> like, and I guess that's one other thing where I feel like Autistica has been quite fortunate. We've just been set up to work like this. And when the pandemic hit, like we had a business continuity plan in place, but re- really, you know, with the exception of moving more to sort of online meetings, it was just quite routine for people to work from home at Autistica. And so it was, you know, the transition was quite smooth for us. And I think there was like a large extent to which people were asking, you know, you know, how are the sort of autistic people in your team managing with this? And I would say pretty well, actually, <laughs> like, and, um, you know, there's, there's a number of things that they, they are finding difficult and like the rest of the team are finding difficult. We're all still going through the same stuff where you sort of wake up every morning and you're like, oh, wow, this is hard and it's hard to concentrate and I miss people and, you know, and so on. So you're still having those experiences, but, you know, actually the transition has been quite smooth for us in many ways, you know, despite all of the challenges and uncertainty, which, which is really hard, you know, for autistic people to manage, you know, everyone's doing really well. That's really interesting what you say, James, because some of those techniques that you mentioned there, I'm neurotypical, but I'm, I'm an introvert. And those ideas that you mentioned about how to make meetings more inclusive, they are music to my ears. They, they, they sound like a, a really good, really productive, uh, inclusive way to, to run things. And actually that very helpful advice you've just given, it's also got me thinking as, as a leader, as a manager, about how I should be offering my team and the client that we work with as well you know those different choices about how you communicate do you think with the the rise of remote working that we've seen during the pandemic do you think it's quite one size fits all that there are sometimes in other organizations you know there's this this thing of this channel is just for this and and this network is just for this rather than perhaps offering those choices yeah, I mean, like I say, because I've only ever worked at Autistica, I've, it's really hard to get a baseline on this. I mean, I think you know what I hear from people that work at Autistica is that it's quite, a, you know, it's quite an accepting workplace where we, where everyone works together in quite a productive way. You know, where everyone always thinks that we're big, but we really we're a team of twenty people, and everyone works very collaboratively together, and everyone knows each other, and everyone's very accepting. So we've got it quite fortunate in that regard, in so much as we all, you know, we're, we're sort of small enough that everyone can sort of work together and understand each other very effectively. And I think that does undoubtedly help. And I think it's sort of, you know, we're quite a sort of accepting team of people who are all switched on. And I think if you join Autistica, you understand, you know, that's the sort of culture and that's and that's the sort of approach. You know, I think one of the things that I am always really thinking about the team working, you know, remotely is, you know, what can we do to support people? How can we sort of prioritize people's well-being? How can we help them to be more productive? I think the key thing, you know, and, and I guess it's sort of a bit of an overarching thing of what I've been saying is like you can't just do one thing that makes life better for everyone. <laughs> like, like like, and that's like the hard thing, like, you know, you start thinking about social activities, you know, that 
might be good for sort of half of your team but it's not going to be good for everyone so you just have to constantly offer like a range of different options you know so we've you know we've done things like buddy schemes you know we've you know said you know said to the team that you know there's no meetings between half 12 and half one that you know people have to people don't have to adhere to it you know some people want to work through and that's fine as well but that's just a break to show that it's it's okay to take a break as well and just you know just continuously reminding people that they have that we're here to support them that we have these range of options in place and then also just trying to model that behavior yourself so making it clear that you are going out for a run at lunchtime and so on and i think that's the key but yeah like you say you know in an effort to adapt this way of remote working there is a temptation to then sort of go try and get everyone in order to promote their well-being doing these different things and productivity but actually the risk is that actually they don't work for everyone and um yeah you've just got to find range of solutions because although we're all we're all having this common shared experiences you know there you know there's people in our team who are parents there are people in our team who are lonely there are people in our team who are you know facing a range of different experiences and it's just trying to be aware of that the whole time and just trying to think about how we can best serve everyone you mentioned um just quickly you mentioned uh just then you know going for a run that you're you know that in a in a way that's a way that leadership has to change you have to say look this is what i'm doing i'm leading by example i've got to go out and do a run so you should feel that you ought to are there any other ways that you've noticed that your leadership has changed in the last 18 months well it's been an odd time for me <laughs> because because i sort of became chief executive during a pandemic so um, so i guess like having stepped into that leadership role at that time it has made me just reflect on the sort of person the team need me to be and what you know what what's the best you know what most productive way to behave I think the main thing really is just being a bit more open and honest you know and, and just acknowledging that it can be quite tough and that it's okay to admit that it feels like it can be quite tough and you know I've I've try to use that as a way to talk to the team about things and to make them know that like it's okay to feel like you know you're you're finding that you're finding this um challenging um i think the other thing is just being really open about where we are as a charity and 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 you know the sort of decisions that you're making and just trying to communicate in a quite a, a quite a clear way and, and and updating people regularly because i think this is quite an uncertain time for people and we you know we've seen that there's been you know chief executives across this, the charity sector that, who have had to make difficult decisions and it's just trying to add that certainty and explain why why we're doing what we're doing you know even things like our lease ended in december and just trying to explain to them like when are we going to back, go back to an office and just updating people every month and just this is where we are this is the situation this is this is the criteria that we used to make the decision we'll always consult you and let people know and so i think it's just sort of clear communication just explaining the situation all the time and taking it from there and then i think probably the other thing that we've noticed is just i guess in terms of our stakeholders are closer to us just bringing those people closer to us as well and being really open and honest you know particularly with our donors and just saying this is the situation this is what we're doing we've not really done that as much and that's i guess that's been another great thing is just those digital type events where we've managed to have quite small group conversations and we've just been very very open and honest and went you know here's the situation here's where we are financially this is what we're going to do next this is a plan and you know that's really been 
something which has really put us in a, you know, a strong position coming into this year, you know. So I think, you know, when the pandemic hit, we were quite anxious about the effect it would have on the charity. But, you know, we're now in a, a, a pretty positive position and we're able to sort of really build into that coming into this year. So it's been a, a year of such huge change for everyone, as you were saying. Uh, and as a leader, has this time made you think differently about digital? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely think it has. I think, you know, it's, it's basically made it clear that, you know, we don't have, as a charity, we don't have bits on the ground across the UK. So we don't have that local connection. So for us, it has to be digital, really. Like it has, to, that's, how, that's how we're going to reach people. You know, in our strategy, as an organisation, we committed to delivering information. And this was something that was new for us. So we, we, you know, when I joined, like I said, we were a research charity, and then who just funded research. And then we sort of started thinking quite strategically about how we shape research in the UK. Then we started doing policy work. And now we're sort of moving towards doing information. And, and the whole thing is really with the mindset of like, how do we make sure that evidence and research makes a difference in the real world? And when we thought about doing information, we were like, all right, this is going to be like a six month process. We're going to slowly develop this. We're going to slowly develop this. And then the pandemic hit. And then we we're like, well, actually, we've got research based things that can help autistic people and their families right now and this is quite an acute period for them you know because autistic people were being pulled out of school and they weren't really sure what was going to happen next you know lots of support was being withdrawn and you know as I mentioned earlier a big thing about autism is just the uncertainty and managing that uncertainty you know if you look back to March I don't really think it mattered to you where we were all like scrolling BBC news looking at the daily briefing just going like what is happening? <laughs> like, you know, what, like, what is going to happen next? And, and uh, how do I convince myself this is going to be okay? And I think, you know, we really felt with the community, we had the responsibility to do something. So, you know, you know, we basically took our information campaign and uh, approached information, which we sort of saw, saw it happening in a matter of months and really just did it in a matter of days. So we put webinars online, we put information online and we moved a lot more quickly than we thought we would. I guess what I've learned is like, you know, there is like, like you do just kind of sometimes just need to get on with it, like, and, um, and, you know, reach people and, you know, re, you know, really we, we should have, you know, we would have used or tested that information, but sometimes, you know, when you followed all these different gold standard processes, sometimes you do just also need to get things out to people, you know, when they need that support. And, you know, we've really had record engagement on our website and over the last 12 months, we've had, you know, people really engaging with us in a way that they haven't in the past. And so, I guess that for me is, you know, is, is one really key thing is that actually this is a really good opportunity for us to help support our community in a really positive, I think obviously we've all looked at ways of working and it's just became really evident that you know, we were looking at expanding our office before this pandemic and because we've seen any growth in, 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 in headcount. And I think it's now quite clear that our sort of understanding of the office is, has evolve rapidly and I think for us thinking about the office and ways of working and making them accepting to all forms of neurodiversity and autistic people and so on is really an interesting challenge for us like how do we shape our future ways of working and what role does digital play in that because I think there's going to be quite a tense as we sort of you know maybe do return to sort of a form of office. How do you make that accessible and and inclusive and can, you know and not go back to that sort of thing where someone's dialing in but they're not really as present in the meeting as everyone else? Because you know we all remember pre-pandemic dialing in and it's like 
it's like a subpar experience really. you don't get to participate in the meeting in the same way that everyone else does so you know how do we sort of address some of those issues and, and make sure that people can feel included so yeah i think that that is definitely like a really big one for us and then i guess maybe this is less me thinking differently but i guess what it's clear to me now is like some of the barriers that we thought existed in terms of delivering on some of our projects are less likely to exist now so you know we have a health check which we're looking to deliver for autistic people it's an annual health check to really try and address health inequalities that autistic adults face and the fact that they experience a lower markedly lower life expectancy than the general population but as part of designing that one of the things that when I was director of science that I was really keen to do is to, is to have this digital tool that basically people can use pre-appointment, which explains some of the adjustments that people can make. And these sort of reasonable adjustments that can be made in, you know, in the real environment, which will help autistic people. So, you know, things like the waiting room, the sensory environment and different things like that, you know, how people are asked questions. And then also to sort of pick up sort of different pieces of health information about a year ago, we were looking at sort of the different risks of implementing this health check i think we would have said oh it's just not going to be possible you know you know it might not be possible to do this digital toolkit immediately because the nhs are going to be really resistant to this um, and gp surgery is going to be really resistant to this but i think now it looks completely possible that we can implement that digital toolkit and actually will be warmly welcomed so i feel like it's an idea that's just came along at the right time now whereas actually something which maybe felt like it was a bit too early health services might be resistant to innovation so i think people are now welcoming welcoming that digital type of innovation in a way which is really positive and actually totally coincides with what we're trying to do as a charity so i think that's i think that's like so exciting because you know for us if we could get that digital toolkit working for autistic people that can make the health check more accessible not only does it make the health service more effective and efficient it's going to really help autistic people have a better experience in their gp surgery and a more personalized experience and you know that's just a huge win-win for us so i think that's a big thing that i see it's just you know huge opportunity and then i guess probably the final thing which i guess i touched on earlier is just in terms of reaching our supporters and having different types of conversations with them i think having like a, a digital type conversation over zoom is so much easier to organize than having like an in-person meeting and actually there's like there's something you you sort of almost lose the formality a little bit in a way as well so you can just be a little bit more open in terms of how you come to conversation as well it's a bit more personal they like see you in you know your own house with your like dodgy green wall and terrible curtains you know i think that just makes it much more engaging as well so you know i think that that's a really important thing as well as you know i think so and it allows you to do things at much greater pace as well so i think that's really, really positive too i think there's going to be a though there already is an unexpected consequence all of this and i think you've touched on it but i think it's a, a growing sense of confidence because people are being forced into making quick and fast changes mm-hmm. trying things out and seeing that the world doesn't fall apart as you said <laughs> there's a whole bunch of people out there that are warmly welcome welcoming of the things that you're doing that you didn't expect mm-hmm. Uh, beforehand so i think that that confidence will shine through just to finish off because i know we're running short on time you're, you're you're working on lots of exciting projects that involve digital and i'm particularly interested in autistica play i mentioned at the, yeah. the, the beginning of our conversation as i'm a, a big gamer and we have friends that i know have children who um who have various levels of autism who uh, engage very very keenly through games and i just wondered if you could tell us a bit more about that and, and any other projects that you'd like to highlight that you're working on at the moment 
Sure. Autistic of Play is an initiative which you set up to try and help build partnerships with the, the games industry. So we know that autistic people have a, a huge affinity with games and uh, not all autistic people, but many autistic people. And that many autistic people have reported that it's been a really good way for them to build connections with people, to learn things, different things and different skills that they've been able to apply into their, their life as well. But we, you know, we also know that games can have a reputation as being these things that autistic people get over-engaged in and so on. So you know, there's a real interest in how we harness games in a positive way that promote the well-being of autistic people. And so to do that, we've We've been building these different relationships to the games industry and also to support with our, with our fundraising as, as, as well. And it's been a huge success for us. We've built you know, a range of different good relationships and we've got our first partnership with um, DPS Games and, and, and they're um, helping us with an employment initiative as well because we know that a number of there's a number of people who work in the games industry are autistic themselves as well. And so how can they make that as an industry inclusive for uh, autistic people? And so we've got a partnership with them. We've also got a number of live streaming events as well, which we do, which are fundraising events. You know, that, that's been a, a huge hit. And I think the key for us has really been having someone who's worked in the games industry work with us to try and help us understand it because I'm not an expert in games at all. It's been definitely an education for me and I think it's really helped us to bridge that gap in terms of building partnerships. And then just in terms of other things that we've got going on, I'm really excited about a project that we've got going on at the Alan Turing Institute, uh, which is a, a partnership that we have with them. And it's a citizen science project. And what we're in the process of creating is a tool that will allow um, autistic people to report their experiences of different types of built environments to try and really build an understanding of what does actually autism friendly mean and what are people's experiences of the actual real world around them. And we're going to really collect, try and collect as much data as we can and try and pick up trends on, uh, on that. And I, I think it's a really exciting and empowering project, which will really tell us a lot more about different types of autistic people's experience of the world around them and really help us to answer this question about what is it, what is an autism friendly environment? What is an enabling environment for autistic people? And then the other thing that we've got going on, we've got our second version of our app coming out, which is called Molehill Mountain. And that's a, an app which we've developed with researchers at King's. And that's a, like a, a proper partnership again, where we're doing the design of the app, the user testing of the app. They're helping us with the, the research side. And what we're trying to create is a, a research informed app that will help autistic people with the management of their anxiety. Because as I, as I, as I talked about earlier, we know that um, half of children by the time they're in primary school have an, a meet criteria for an anxiety disorder. And we know that anxiety is an issue which tends to um, be a challenge for autistic people throughout their life. And so this, the idea is that this app can you know, potentially help with that. So, you know, we've got a range of different things coming out over the, the course of this year, which, which we're really excited about. That, that Mohill Mountain app comes out in April um, and that the Citizen Science Project should, should be out at some point during this year as well. And we're yeah, really excited about both of them and, and also about how we can, you know, and just come back to the Citizen Science Project, um, really excited about how we can build partnerships with different organizations, so companies, um, uh, the health service, you know, so we, you know, how can we work with, again, you know, like hospitals, you know, to share findings about what autistic people's experience of the health service actually is and for them to help them make that more accessible too. So yeah, a lot, a lot going on, but really, you know, as you can see, really, you know, really exciting things to look forward to for us this year, I think. Wow, James, that, that sounds 
fascinating um, and if there's anything that you'd like us to uh, link people to in, in the show notes we're really happy to do that and mm-hmm. we'd love to hear how all of those projects go they sound brilliant and, and very much needed mm-hmm. uh, well on that note we know you're a, a busy man and you've got lots of things to do we're so grateful for you giving up your time today to, to talk to us and, and for shining a light on the really fascinating important issues that you and your team are, are working on at Autistica and thank you so much for, for sharing your journey and your advice for leaders great thank you very much for having me it's been fun thank you very much thank you to james for a fantastic conversation it definitely helped me to appreciate the inequalities that autistic people face and the importance of neurodiversity and how it's represented in the workplace and beyond i really like that point about how autistica's annual conference was set up as a hybrid event both online and off and not only do those types of events work really well for autistic people but they also allow more people and a wider variety of people to to get involved and i think we've seen a lot of that with some of these events that have moved online a wider attendance and, and involvement Zoe, any takeaways you'd like to share? The big thing that really stuck with me from James's interview was his point about how if we improve the, the way we work and we communicate for people who are neurodiverse, then actually it improves things for everyone across the board in the organisation. So that's something that's been in the back of my mind whilst I've been working with clients over the, the last few weeks, because I think neurodiversity is sometimes seen as a bit of a niche issue. But actually, as James was saying, if we can take the principles about how to improve things, then that, that could be really positive for all employees. Definitely, definitely. So thank you to James. And um, we'll include uh, links to Autistica and how you can get in touch with, with James in, in the show notes. Um, before we go, I'd just like to say that we had some amazing feedback on our book and music recommendations in the last episode. Well, at least my wife said that she liked it. So I think we should make that a regular feature. So I've just finished a novel. I, I sort of mentioned this last week and then quickly dismissed it because, you know, we're a podcast about leadership and digital and change and all those things. So to mention a novel might be a bit problematic. But I've just finished a book called Boy Swallows Universe by Trent Dalton, which is a novel about two brothers uh, growing up in 80s suburban Brisbane. And I absolutely love this book. It's based on his life. He's a journalist now, but based on his life growing up. It has it all. It's fast paced, feels quite cinematic. It's got a drug dealing mother, a drug dealing um, stepfather. It's sort of got a magic surrealist type quality to it. And I think it's being turned into a TV series, but I absolutely loved it. And it's a rare, one of those rare books where you just you're thinking all the way through i hope he nails the ending and he absolutely landed it so i thought that was absolutely fantastic and music wise i keep coming back to in a song by kelly lee owens i know i've um, mentioned this one to you zoe i think it complements your choice last week of the uh, the bicep album Isles. but kelly lee owens in a song has just been on my on, on my sort of heavy rotation list for about a year now zoe anything you'd like to share i have just finished a fantastic autobiography by the comedian tom allen called no shame and it's an absolute treat I'd really recommend it um I bought it because I heard him being interviewed on the fortunately podcast uh, and I'm used to him you know he's really funny I really like him um it's very acerbic but actually the book is very sort of thoughtful and it's about his journey of coming to accept himself as a gay man and it's just so interesting I mean it's a brilliant book about self-acceptance and how we see ourselves, how the world sees us and the kind of shame that he he felt and how he kind of got past that and how he made some of his insecurities part of of his comedy act. So I'd really recommend it. It's it's a beautiful, very moving, very well-written book. 
Excellent. I have to look it out. So thank you for listening to episode two of season three. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, I think, with an, uh, another episode. We're going to take a short break for the Easter holidays. So we'll be back with you in a couple of weeks. Mm, yeah, time to eat chocolate. As mm. usual, please send us your feedback. We'd love to hear about anything that you feel you'll do differently after hearing from any of our speakers from the series. You can share your plans, ideas or questions with us on Twitter. We're at, at starts at the top one. And you can email us at starts at the top podcast at gmail.com. If your platform allows it, please leave us a five-star review. And thank you to you all for listening and we'll speak to you again soon.